There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. This week, President Biden made the announcement that al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahiri has been killed by a drone strike in Afghanistan. The CIA zeroed in on his location by carefully studying his movements and his family's movements until Biden authorized a precise, tailored airstrike. This came with two Hellfire R-9X missiles hitting Zawahiri on the balcony of his safe house in Kabul. For more on how this strike happened and the impact it's had on the terrorist network, we'll speak to Idris Ali, foreign policy correspondent at Reuters. Since the United States delivered justice to bin Laden 11 years ago, Zawahiri has been a leader of al-Qaeda, the leader. From hiding, he coordinated al-Qaeda's branches and all around the world, including setting priorities for providing operational guidance that call for and inspired attacks against U.S. targets. He made videos, including in recent weeks, calling for his followers to attack the United States and our allies. Now, justice has been delivered, and this terrorist leader is no more. Earlier this year, the CIA got information that the leader of al-Qaeda, Ayman al-Zawahiri, was in Afghanistan. And so they were able to track his wife, his daughter, and her children um, to sort of this house in really the center of Kabul. That then led them to find Zawahiri, who was in the house. And they basically have been tracking him for the better part of eight months now, seven, eight months since the year began. They kept surveillance. They noticed that he wasn't leaving the house and they were able to confirm his identity because there was a balcony on the second floor of the house and he would go out into the balcony. And so a decision was made by President Biden on July 25th, about a week ago, that the weather and all the other factors were correct and they would launch a strike. So they used a CIA drone which fired two Hellfire missiles and actually struck Zawahiri when he was in his balcony early Sunday morning Kabul time. And yesterday, President Biden confirmed that it was indeed Zawahiri who had been killed and it was a sort of successful counterterrorism operation. 
Now, uh, as you mentioned, that balcony was key in all of this. They were tracking the patterns, tracking the movements they knew would be there. And that's exactly where those Hellfire missiles, the, you know, a lot of people have been talking about those, these Hellfire R9X missiles. They call them ninja bombs. They throw out these kind of spinning blades that they say uh, mm-hmm. chop up and crush the target. And that was also important, too, because President Biden was really asking a lot of questions. They had models of the apartment mm-hmm. there, really asking a lot of questions about possible casualties of civilians or even his own family. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, uh, it's important to remember that there are no U.S. troops in Afghanistan. And so it was very important, I think, for the president and for his administration to be as sure as possible as they could that there wouldn't be sufficient civilian casualties without having troops on the ground to be able to ensure that. And the R9X is this sort of layered in secrecy missile. Uh, rather than exploding, it's basically this bomb which you drop. And when it drops and comes in close contact, these six blades sort of come out of the missile and they essentially chop up the person. And what that ensures is that there's no secondary explosion leading to unintended casualties. And the one caveat I will add is that this was a CIA strike. And while we know this bears the hallmarks of an R9X missile with sort of the blades, we don't know what we don't know about the CIA arsenal, right? They could have missiles that we just have never seen, a different variant of the R9X. So it's one of the things that I don't think we'll necessarily fully know for sure for some time now. The building that Zawahiri was in was located in downtown Kabul in Afghanistan. Now, we all know what happened with the U.S. withdrawal out of Afghanistan. You know, there's been a lot of stuff going on there. The Taliban has assumed control of that area. What do we make, what do intelligence officials make of the fact that Zahiri was hiding there? Were they providing him cover? You know, all that. How does that square off? Yeah, no, I think it's really important because I think you remember that in 2011 when Osama bin Laden was killed. He was not in some mountainous region, sort of in a rugged location. He was also um, in Aptabad, Pakistan, which is not terribly far from their main military academy. So the fact that he was essentially, you know, what would have been a few blocks away from the U.S. embassy there was a presence, sort of shows a, the fact that he was very comfortable. He felt that he could be amongst the population. The fact that he was going on in the balcony showed that he wasn't afraid. And C, officials have said the Taliban knew he was there. So it sort of shows his comfort level. But B, the Taliban government appears to be giving safe haven to al-Qaeda members, which I think is causing, it was expected, but it's causing renewing angst within um, the administration about the future of terrorism potentially emanating from Afghanistan. Zawahiri was one of the masterminds of the September 11th attacks. What does this do now for al-Qaeda? You know, they've lost Osama bin Laden. They've lost Zawahiri now. There's always somebody else that steps up usually in situations like this. But what does this do for that network right now? I think al-Qaeda, most officials and analysts will agree, has sort of, I don't want to call it a decline, but has not been the same al-Qaeda it was before Osama bin Laden was killed. After he was killed, Zawahiri took over and he, while an important figure, was never as charismatic as Osama bin Laden and wasn't able to galvanize people to join al-Qaeda. So they were sort of in this static situation where they were almost sort of uh, becoming an ancient militant organization. And they were really hurt by the sort of emergence of uh, ISIS in Iraq and Syria. And that sort of went to affect their recruiting. So they were not as effective as they were in years past. And I think what this does, at least temporarily, is create some sort of disarray at the top, which will likely lead to some disarray amongst the rank and file. But it's also important to remember the size of al-Qaeda in Afghanistan last year was estimated to be 500. So it's not a terribly large organization 
to start with. And I think it's one of those things that I think we will have to wait and see in terms of what the impact is, because, you know, on the one hand, it could lead to disarray, but I think there's also some concern that it could counterintuitively actually galvanize some of their forces into being more assertive. Well, we'll see if anything rebounds from the Al-Qaeda group. And then, as you mentioned, too, you know, what happens with tensions and relationships with the Taliban now that they've taken over Afghanistan there. Idris Ali, foreign policy correspondent at Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. This week, the U.S. also officially declared the monkeypox outbreak a national health emergency. This is in addition to various other states already declaring their own emergencies. The designation frees up funds to ramp up vaccination efforts, testing, education, and outreach. In the meantime, many monkeypox patients feel there's a lack of guidance, and they've been reporting excruciating pain. For more on what to know, we'll speak to Dominique Mossbergen, medical science reporter at The Wall Street Journal. That's certainly been the case, at least, you know, through the earlier part of this outbreak, people who got diagnosed with monkeypox in June and July. I think things seem to be improving on the ground. You know, people are saying that they're getting slightly better guidance now. There's more public information about monkeypox and, you know, how it presents and what to expect and what to do. But, you know, I've spoken to several patients who were diagnosed with monkeypox in July. And so not that long ago, right, over the last few weeks. And they said, you know, that they, number one, it seems, you know, many people said that they were really taken aback by, you know, they didn't realize what um, high risk of monkeypox was in certain communities that they're in. You know, obviously, as we know, most monkeypox cases of the U.S. have been in the community of men who have sex with men. And, you know, especially concentrated in some of the larger cities like Chicago and New York and San Francisco. And I think some people have said, look, I knew that monkeypox was a thing, but I didn't know that the risk was so high in my community. If I had known that it was at the time, maybe I would have taken some different choices, made some different choices during Pride, for example, during the July 4th weekend and so on. So I think there was some frustration about that, that there wasn't maybe adequate information about how serious the outbreak was already over the last few weeks. So I think that was part of it. I think patients I've spoken to, some of them have reported, as you said, you know, real pain. I think some other symptoms that are maybe a little worrying are really high fevers. So several people I spoke to said that they had extremely high fevers, you know, upwards of 103, 104 degrees Fahrenheit that didn't respond to fever-reducing medications like Tylenol and Advil and things like that. And some of them had to seek hospitalization because of these high fevers. Pain has obviously been a big one, I think, especially if someone gets lesions in more sensitive areas of the body. Some people have reported lesions in their mouth, for example, which can make it, you know, especially if they're severe, can make it really hard to swallow. So it can make it hard to eat and drink, and even in some cases, hard to talk and even maybe to breathe. If it gets really severe, if it's in sensitive regions, such as in the urethra or in the rectum or other sensitive areas like that, it can cause real extreme pain. Um, As you can imagine, you know, going to the bathroom and things like that become really, really hard. And some patients I've spoken to anyway have said that, you know, the pain was more than any pain that they've ever experienced in their life, you know, more than broken bones and more than other kind of painful things that they've experienced. And some of them said that they were given 
really strong painkillers like morphine and Vicodin, and even those really intense pain meds didn't help. That's one of the important things, and we learned a lot about this throughout the pandemic as well. We're always playing from behind when these things are happening. You know, cases need to start going out of control before we start talking about them. Declaring these states of emergencies happen after the case counts are so high now. And part of these efforts, right, as I mentioned, devoting more resources, education, outreach efforts, and people are starting to hear more about it. And like you said, a lot of people hear this stuff early on, and they might not think, well, it's not going to affect me, all that. But, you know, then it comes closer and closer, and then uh, we're experiencing what's happening now. One of the interesting things also that you mentioned in the article, talking to all these people, is that they really feel like the healthcare system might not be completely ready for this. A lot of times they're misdiagnosing it with something else, or maybe just dismissing it, saying, oh, you know, it's not that try some other medicine, things like that. And and again, maybe the hospitals themselves don't have the proper guidance on this, but patients have been experiencing that, that somebody got diagnosed with herpes and they gave them uh, Valtrex instead of going through and testing them for the monkeypox, different cases like that. Yeah, I think that, you know, patients have definitely reported frustrating, you know, situations like that. I think it's really tricky overall. You know, I think, I think you know, monkeypox has been endemic in, in parts of Africa for many years. But in terms of, you know, being a, a really major concern here in the U.S., it really hasn't happened until this particular outbreak. And so I think, you know, physicians on the ground have said, like, look, this is a new thing. We're still figuring it out. We're still learning. So I think there's definitely that. I mean, the CDC has said that they've, you know, the CDC and HHS, They've said, you know, we've done what we can to reach out to physicians and to um, community health clinics and things like that and at-risk communities to let them know, you know, what symptoms to look out for and stuff like that. So there have been some efforts, I think, but I think there has been criticism that maybe it wasn't enough or too little, too late. Um, I think there is some criticism like that. So I definitely think some patients, especially in the earlier days, you know, really suffered from that lack of maybe sufficient education and just generally sufficient knowledge about this particular outbreak. Well, we're going to be hearing a lot more about this as cases do rise that you made mention in the article, too. The U.S. has surpassed Spain with the most cases now, and that's not a place where we want to be. So learn more about it and and, uh, get in touch with your local uh, health systems to know more, too. Dominique Mossbergen, medical science reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. 
Shortly after millennials hit their teens and started getting jobs, their employment numbers plummeted, fueling the myth of the lazy millennial. But now, after looking at the data, it seems like it might not have been that they didn't want jobs. Rather, they were entering the workforce after two recessions and competing with laid-off, more experienced workers. For more on what to know, we'll speak to Andrew Van Dam, Department of Data columnist at the Washington Post. The teen employment rate fell by something like half when millennials were in the sort of the teen age range, and we thought that that was going to be a permanent feature of the economy. It's just that teens work less now because you know they have more educational obligations. Millennials were the most educated generation up to that point. Now Gen Z is, I assume, going to take the crown. But they had educational obligations, they had extracurricular activities, they had stuff keeping them out of the workforce, right? But then Gen Z comes along and they start going back into the workforce. And so there was a real inflection point just at that generation change where teen employment started rising again under Generation Z. And, of course, the question is, what the heck happened? Because we know these generations are just fancy labels I put on a chart. It's not supposed to happen in the real world where you flip a switch and immediately teen behavior changes because they have a different generation label, right? You know, you, you're you seeing something happening in these numbers. And, you know, you as you mentioned in the article, you took it directly to the people that are changing it now. So you spoke to a bunch of Gen Z people, Zoomers, and asked them, you know, what's going on? Do you want to work and all that? And all signs really pointed to, yes, you know, if we have the opportunity, you know, we're not busy with school, especially when summertime comes around. Yeah, we want to get jobs and we want to make some extra money. So you looked into it on that front and you really kind of found out that Maybe it wasn't that the teens changed so much when millennials were teens and now the Gen Zs are teens. It maybe wasn't that so much that changed, but it was the businesses that did. Right. So we talked to the teens and they're like, hey, of course, you offer me $12 an hour and a very streamlined application process. Any teen's going to jump at that. They laughed at the idea that there was something different about their generation that made them willing to get paid 15 bucks an hour to do an entry-level job. Uh, anyone would do that if they had the option. But the thing is, millennials just did not have the option. And that is because oldest millennials came of age during the 2001 recession and the notoriously jobless recovery that followed. And the older millennials, or younger millennials, sorry, came of age after the Great Recession and another jobless recovery. So those are two major recessions and jobless recoveries that sort of define the millennial labor market. And each of those created an enormous pool of qualified workers who were desperate for work. They had been laid off at age, you know, 45 after 15 years in the high-end restaurant industry. They were desperate for anything. And so they were competing for those entry-level jobs with millennial teens. And so, honestly, the teens didn't have a chance, right? They would immediately get out-competed by cheap, experienced workers. So, honestly, until those experienced workers had all found jobs, until the easy pickings were gone, employers just didn't bother to hire teens because it's harder to hire a teen. You have to train them. You have to teach them what work is all about. I talked to business and they're like, yeah, we have to teach them to shave and show up five minutes early for your shift or whatever. Just absolutely (laughs) basic things. And and the schedule, the schedule shifting as well, you know, if they have school, if they have extracurricular activities, you have to kind of work around that. And as you, you know, to your point of, you know, experienced workers, older workers who are available for the jobs, you don't have to work with that schedule as much. And, you know, as time has gone on, businesses have gotten better about keeping that in the back of their heads and maybe hiring on more teens so that you can work around a lot of those schedules. You know, it really has become kind of an evolution of these businesses, too. 
businesses who were hiring teens 30, 40 years ago before millennials hit the labor market, they were able to get away with quite a bit, treat them like any other worker. But now teens have so many obligations. As we said, it is true that they have more extracurricular activities than more of them are planning on going to college. And so you have to work around that. We talked to businesses who had created special programs to start with college freshmen, teach them just a couple hours a week to sort of get into their lives, teach them the basic skills they'll need to be an excellent worker when they're a junior, senior in high school, right? And so they had to think of innovative new ways to work with teens today who do have different schedules than teens before. Another employer we talked to actually said her great epiphany was that she could hire teens who were all from different activities, different sports, different clubs. So maybe the baseball kid can't work on Saturdays, but the drama kid is totally open that day. <laughs> right. You just have to be a little bit flexible and be willing to work with them. And employers have learned that if they do want to fill these entry-level positions at the wages they're paying, uh, working with teens is the best way to do that. Yeah. So they're learning how to work with teens again. And the wages right now at entry level are a lot better even than they were in the past. But just again, you know, it's it kind of uh, is unfortunate to really pin it on this. But millennials do just have the misfortune of kind of coming up in all of these worst moments in all of these job markets. And it's going to stick with them for the rest, stick with us for the rest of our careers because people have found that if you have a teen job you're later more likely to graduate from high school because you've learned important life skills. You've learned that if you don't show up on time, you don't get a paycheck. If you're not disciplined, you don't get a paycheck. And that teaches you real quick skills that you just can't learn, you know, grinding through the public school system. So uh, they're more likely to graduate. They're more likely to earn more later on. They're less likely to commit either petty or felony crimes. And so all of these things, all of these benefits of having a teen job, a lot of millennials didn't get their entire life. They're going to be set back because they did not have the same teen job opportunities that Gen X did, that Boomers did, and now that Zoomers are getting. Well, we'll keep an eye out on all of this, see how the Zoomers do progress. Again, just another bad rap for millennials and hopefully not as lazy as we all might have thought initially. <laughs> Andrew Van Dam, Department of Data columnist at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. It was all sorts of fun. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment. Give us a rating. And tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.